Hi there. I'm Lee Redhead, a writer and member of Sisters in Crime Australia. Welcome to Scarlet Stiletto Bites, scintillating short stories by Australian women. Our weekly podcast is designed for busy lives. Each murder mystery is short, but not always sweet. Expect twisted tales, quirky humour, imagination, and a frisson of feminism. Sisters in Crime Australia's Scarlet Stiletto Awards were established in 1994 to unearth criminal literary talent. We're producing these podcasts of winning stories to celebrate the sisters' 30th anniversary ceremony in Melbourne in late 2023. The concept designer and narrator is fellow sister, actor, barrister, broadcaster, and best-selling true crime author, Susanna Lopez. Hello, Susanna here again. Today's story explores the distance between glorious and gruesome, and where reality sits on that spectrum. 2010 Scarlet Stiletto winner Tallow by Eleanor Marnie. And there are some flashbacks and flash forwards in this story, and some gory themes. Dear Tunny and Peter, uh, I've been in such conundrums about this letter. I I didn't know when to give it to you or if I should give it to you at all. I considered enclosing it with my will, but finally decided that that would be unfair. The posthumous surprise is the coward's way out, I believe. I didn't want you to feel like I was sidestepping the fallout from all this. I didn't want it to be that way. So I've written this to be given to you both on the 25th anniversary of our aloneness. I should apologise before I begin. This is not a happy story, but I must tell it anyway. James pressed me not to do it. He thinks you will contact the police. Maybe you will. I will have to trust you both. Whatever happens, I will have to bear it. A a part of me wants to ask your pardon, beg your forgiveness. But another part of me stands resolutely beyond that. I did what I did for you both. And I have a dogged feeling about it that things happened as they did, and I can't change them now in any case. I don't have regrets, which isn't to say that I don't still have nightmares. This is how you make a candle. Cut your tallow into pieces, then place the pieces into a large double boiler over water that is already gently bubbling. Stir the tallow until it reaches 71 degrees Celsius and is completely melted. Add the colour chips or scent to the melted medium. This is really a matter of personal taste. 
Keep in mind that anything added will affect the way the candle burns, but raw tallow can have a, a, a meaty smell and you might not fancy the amber greasy look like yellowing teeth or tobacco-stained fingers. Cut the wicks to the desired length of the candle plus five inches and tie the wicks to the iron brooch. Check that the temperature of the tallow is still 71 Celsius. Then dip the wicks in the tallow for a few seconds. Lift back out and allow the candles to cool between dippings, about a minute or so. Once the weight of the tallow stiffens and straightens the wicks, things will get easier. Make sure the wet candles aren't touching each other. Continue dipping and cooling. Repeat the process until the candles have reached the desired thickness, or forever, until your back and shoulders ache and you wonder if this whole terrifying, ghastly business will ever end. Flora's cards are labelled tallow, just the creamy square of 240GSM with the secretive dark script, her name and contact for the shop, very much like an exclusive club, a health spa maybe. The products are exclusive. You know it's a good way to make something popular. People usually desire the things they think they'll never attain. Flora recognises that yearning, but she doesn't feel it anymore. She has Douglas and Tunny and Peter to assuage it. She minds it only as a plank for the business now, working it into a recipe for commercial success. People desire. They desire candles and soap, even though candles and soap are really just fat and lye, mixed together in the right proportions. Ah, oh, standing there in your gown, smiling your hellos and thank yous for coming to my wedding. When Bev Dingle comes up, clutching her Winnie Blues, already half pissed before the reception's properly started, Heedless of Douglas's tall, morning-suited bulk, she squeezes your arm. Oh, Flo, she sozzles out. Oh, Flo, your mum would be so proud. I don't know how you snagged him, but you snagged a beauty there, Flo, you lucky girl. And then the press of the queue is pushing her down the reception line. You and Douglas exchange quick grins before you straighten. Three more hours to go and you smile, stretch your face. The soap is cut with a butcher's knife from immense pale-grained blocks. She only sells by weight. The candles are not for the faint-hearted. They are big, bigger around than Flora's own thigh and some as tall as herself. She likes the scale of them. An art form. She never uses colour, keeps the ice white or honey gold or brown pear tones as the focus. Natural is very in, like recycled wood panelling or free range eggs. 
Dad only lived long enough to see the twins arrive, the, the podling pair, he called them. And he never liked you talking with that Melbourne accent. But the twins, weren't they something? Just beautiful. Just what the doctor ordered right before he had his stroke. Tunny and Peter liked to slide their fingers down the sides of wax mountains, press their hands against a soap block and then sniff the lavender on their skin. Flora likes to stand at the entrance to the shop and look at the graduating heights of the cold white pillars, the golden draped waterfall of dangling hand-dipped tapers, the massive chunks of soap like, like something she's chipped off a glacier. The sense of personal accomplishment is fantastic. You can't buy that. But that was after Mum died. She was always into crafty things, making do, making soap, sewing her own clothes. The big Vicola jars labelled peaches and stewed tomatoes. You can still remember the peaches melting in your mouth after all these years. The shop is entirely neat and pragmatic much like Flora herself, a stylish amalgam that friends term Quaker modern. Elderly gentrified industrial location and Flora's old-fashioned wares in combination with glass, white paint, pale wood. She revels in it. It's like a, a, a present, a gift to herself after years of dutiful marriage and the shepherding of her twin lambs through gestation and infancy and now school readiness. Actually, the shop is a present from Douglas, a reward or an apology, compensation for all the business trips and late-night meetings and the isolation of solo parenting, all wrapped up in an old facade, rejuvenated by lime wash and varnished pine. I think it's more like a present from James, Douglas says as he curls an arm around her. She leans into his embrace. Oh, James, she says, rolling her eyes. A year after Douglas had introduced him... She finally nailed the accent. Since he talked about himself so little, she waited until Douglas was getting beers from the fridge. Uh, Africana, she said. What's that? Your accent, it is, isn't it? He smiled, not looking at her. Most Australians wouldn't know an Afrikaans accent if it bit them on the rear, he said. (laughs) She noticed he doesn't agree or deny. I remember from my father's cricket Saturdays, the radio broadcasts. Very clever, he said approvingly. Flora still doesn't know if it's the truth. James Fisk is their accountant. Douglas has known James for years, years before he knew Flora. That Douglas and James now work in the same firm is like a kind of inevitability. James comes for dinner, stays to talk business with Douglas. 
He's part of the furniture of their lives, ordering the nature of it to some extent. Now is a good time to take a holiday, James says, before capital expenditure becomes due. You should negatively gear the rental property. You've been wanting that industrial tankage unit for the workshop, haven't you? James says. You should buy it. Really? Flora smiles, sipping her wine. Seriously? You said yourself it'll make things easier, Douglas prompts with a grin. Increased productivity? (laughs) No, seriously, says James, and then I can claim it for you in July. The use of tallow or lard was the catalyst for the Indian mutiny of 1857. To load the Enfield rifle, the sepoys had to bite the cartridge open. It was believed that the paper cartridges were greased with lard, which was considered unclean by Muslims, or tallow, regarded as sacred to Hindus. Later, Douglas finishes the last of the red while Floritad is up. We we should pay him a retainer, I think, sometimes, Flora says, wiping the bench top. Douglas frowns. Don't say that, he'd be insulted. Do you think he's content? She wonders absently. Do do I think he's what? I mean, he, he lives alone. He's obsessed with work. He's so contained. Flora has a sudden mental image of straw-haired James loosening his tie by one degree as he sits, whiskey in hand. I wonder if it makes him happy. I think James's interests are in other things, Douglas confides. What, he's not interested in happiness? I, mean, I know he's not gay, so maybe, I don't know, having a family... Or or at least a partner. (laughs) You sound like my Auntie Vi, Douglas grins. Not everyone wants a family flow. James's loyalties lie elsewhere. Elsewhere? What are his loyalties then? Pecuniary, Douglas says. It rolls off his tongue like he's tasting the word. Leave him be, he has his own code. Flora leans on the benchtop. Sounds a bit cold, I think, a bit mercenary. Douglas drains the glass and looks at the ceiling. Does it? The story of soap was first told in 1000 BC. Women rinsing clothes in the river below the place where animal sacrifices were conducted discovered that clothes became cleaner in contact with the soapy clay oozing there, where the rendered animal fat soaked through the wood ashes and into the river water. So my my hand is shaking even as I write this. It was Wednesday evening. I remember because Wednesday and Thursday were the days I didn't open for business or or do any preparation work. My midweek weekend, Douglas used to say. 
He said he'd take the Sydney meetings from Wednesday to Friday. I wasn't expecting him back until Friday evening. He undoubtedly wasn't expecting me to enter the shop. But we stopped there early on Wednesday evening because, oh, Tony, you had left Bear upstairs from the shop. Do you remember Thread Bear, dearest? We called him that because... Oh, I'm stalling, I'm sorry. We entered the shop and walked through the familiar dark colonnade, past the counter toward the staircase. I remember wondering why I could see light under the workshop door, feeling that mixture of exasperation. It must have been me, I've left something on, and alarm. Is anybody there? When I slid the workshop door open... The rollers hissed, and you were both clinging to my pants legs, and I saw your father. Douglas is standing near the centre of the workshop in his business shirt and trousers. Flora's hands remember holding the iron over that shirt. Now she's only holding her keys. Douglas is holding a small blowtorch kitchen one like you use to glaze creme caramel like the one flora uses in the workshop it is the one she uses in the workshop she recognizes this somehow in his other hand douglas holds a short bladed bowie knife tied to a wooden chair in front of him is a man in a singlet and a pair of dark trousers. He has bare feet. Flora can only see the back view, the man's sweaty black hair, his limp hands secured at the wrists, the bow of his shoulders. The floor beneath the chair, beneath Douglas's feet, is covered in thick, clear, industrial plastic. And there are puddles of dark red ooze spattered onto it. To the right of the chair is a blue shopping bag filled with bundles of paper money. Yellow, blue, grey, more cash than Flora has ever seen in its raw form. The whole scene is aglow, stark and bluish, lit up from the side like a diorama in the halo of the workshop desk lamp. It looks staged, filmic somehow. It is unreal. It can't be real. Rendering converts waste animal tissue into stable value-added materials and refers to any processing of animal byproducts or more narrowly, to the rendering of whole animal fatty tissue into purified fats, lard or tallow. Rendering can be done on an industrial farm or kitchen scale. Flora is arrested there in the doorway, her expression frozen. She stares at her husband, at the whole scene, all at once as though her eyes have widened so much that she can see everything in 
panorama. There's no need for the eye to flit from detail to detail. Her view is omniscient. Douglas is not wearing his tie. His face is ruddy, a bit sweaty, energised. It's, it's rather like the way his face looks after sex. This pulls Flora back. The way Douglas's expression and déshabillé convey the sense of adultery, only this is not adultery. This is something else. Flora returns to her body in a rush, feels the press of the children's warmness against her leg. She blinks at her husband. Flora. Douglas breathes out her name. He is shocked, yes. Then his face changes, becomes paler, more still. His lips come together as he swallows. Flora recognises this. This is Douglas composing himself. Possibly it is this tiny thing that tips her off, that clues her in. Douglas is composing his face for her. Only seconds after he says her name, he regains himself. He releases a switch on the blowtorch with his thumb. There is a zip as the blue flame goes out. Flora feels realisation ignited as the blowtorch is extinguished. Perhaps it's the absurdity of it. How is it possible to put a composed face on this? But really, it is the speed of it, the rapidity of the transition in Douglas's face. This is not a singular act. This is something he does a lot. He can change his face, alter his expression at will. He can control his emotions quickly to cope with sudden changes in circumstance. This is not the reaction of an ordinary, loving husband devoted father, corporate businessman. This is not the reaction of an ordinary person. Flora understands. But please believe me, dear ones, when I tell you it wasn't an easy thing to do. On any level. Physically, it, it went on and on all night. Mentally and emotionally, I loved your father, loved him deeply. What he did doesn't really take that away. And what I did, I could say that I reacted on instinct, but in a way he did too. She takes her eyes off Douglas, only long enough to glance down at the child nearest her right hand. Peter... She says in a low voice, You and Tunny go upstairs and find Bear, please. Something, the frisson of energy in the scene they don't understand, communicates itself to the children, like when Flora and Douglas argue. The children don't complain or query. Peter takes Tunny's hand and says, Come on, Tun, and they head for the staircase together. Tunny has her thumb in her mouth. Flora does not let herself think that she is frightened. 
She takes the one step down into the workshop automatically, relying on reflex with her eyes back on Douglas. She rolls the door closed behind her. She keeps her face very blank, as blank as can be. The most significant problem when rendering fat for tallow is the smell. Chandlers and soap boilers were often relegated to the industrial section of townships on account of noisome odours, an unavoidable byproduct of large-scale boiling of animal carcasses. Keeping her expression blank, getting the children out of the way, it's a miscalculation, she realises. It reveals something about her to Douglas. It reveals that she understands the situation. But what else could she do? When Douglas speaks again, she only starts because the tone of his voice is so familiar, so so unnatural in this time and place. I wasn't expecting you, Douglas says quietly. Sounds so domestic. And she should say something. She should say clearly, or something like that. She doesn't say anything. Her breath is starting to come back in short and tight. She mustn't hyperventilate. She mustn't scream. Screaming is what you do when you have nothing left. She forces herself to just stand, hands at her sides. Check the tankage unit at 10pm. She's wiping sweat off her lip as she watches James prepare the buckets. She wishes her hands would stop shaking. Oh God, I need a fag. I wish I had a fag, she whispers. She hasn't said fag for cigarette in about 15 years. She's almost crying now. She wants one so badly. It's like an ache in her chest. And James offers her a swig from his silver flask, which helps some, but... With her omniscient eye, Flora observes the scene between the two players. The man in the chair is unmoving. She and Douglas are the players. The looks they direct at each other indicate that they have assessed each other correctly. All that remains is to act. Douglas begins. He sets his face grimly and says, Flora, I'm sorry you had to see this. Flora still can't trust herself to speak, so she just nods her head quickly. But before she's finished the action, she's wondering what he means. When Douglas takes a brisk, purposeful step towards her, with the knife in his hand, she comprehends he is apologising for what he's about to do. He moves fast and she can't stumble back. There's nowhere to go. She makes a garbled cry, cringes as he swipes with the knife. She raises her hand automatically. She's still holding her keys. The knife clashes onto them like the sound, like teeth clicking together. And by some miracle, none of her fingers is severed. And the force of the blow telescopes up her arm, sending her reeling off the step. 
She bounces off the edge of the work table to her right, jarring her hip, twisting to see her husband. His face is unreachable, single-minded, and he has turned the knife to allow him to thrust down, make a clean plunge into her breast. She's half sprawled over the table, pressed into the corner, and her left hand rakes the wall. She knows she is trapped completely, and she feels her face, mouth stretched in horror, eyes gasping wide. Flora's left hand hits something leaning in the corner, something hard. She grabs for it as Douglas steps in. She rams forward with the hard, heavy brooch handle. The brooch is made of cast iron and shaped like a broom. At the base, where the broom's bristled head should be, there are twelve five-inch metal tines. The brooch handle slams into Douglas's face with a ghastly thud. Blood explodes from his nose. For a moment, his robotic expression is cross-eyed, confused, and Flora almost makes a hysterical laugh. She pulls on the handle. As it comes away, she can see the impression it has made in Douglas's skin, in his skull. He stumbles back, raising a hand drunkenly to the indentation in his forehead. He looks alien and slow, so Flora almost lets her guard down. Then he lifts his eyes and she only has time to swing the brooch base up when he makes a lurching thrust forward, knife arcing high. She puts her whole weight into bracing, head hunkered down, shoulders hunched. The collision knocks her off the table. So by the time it's over, she's semi-crouched over the handle of the brooch, kneeling, squeezed between table and wall, gasping, staring up into the ruined face of her impaled, dead husband. What did you call me? Douglas always called you in emergencies. She exhales, feeling white and shocked. Yes, he did. This is one, an emergency. Yes, it is. James still looks confused. And you, you trust me? I can do better than trust you, she says. I can pay you. She stays like that for a minute, blowing hard. Then the demands of gravity kick in. She sinks forward, lets the brooch, with Douglas's body decorating the end, crumple to the floor. Douglas is half on, half off the step. His expression is one of total surprise. The tines of the brooch have pierced him in four places across the heart line of his chest and in one place on his right bicep, snagging the muscle there cruelly. Flora's arms are sore and shaking, but she uses them to climb her way up to the tabletop. Then she uses the tabletop to support herself as she steps over the brooch and the body, stumbling onto the clear floor area beside the man in the chair.
She'd forgotten about him. She stands, holding the table and shivering like she has hypothermia. Then her knees give way and she sinks in a shambolic fashion onto her bottom. Her arms flop. Her breath is blowing in and out and she feels something building up inside her. The scream she couldn't afford to let out before. But she can't let it out now either. She drags her hands up to her face, pushes them hard against her mouth, so the only noise escaping is the <coughs> sob of air wheezing in and out of her nose. She closes her eyes. Slowly, her breathing comes under control until she's just going <coughs> behind her hand. Then she can take her hand away open her eyes, just sit for a moment. Her eyes move around, the scene, the bodies, the plastic she's puddled on. Minutes pass, then something clicks inside her and she heaves to her feet, staggers over to Douglas, roots in one trouser pocket before pulling on his hips to access the other. She pulls out the mobile phone, hesitates. Her fingers shake so she almost drops the phone, but she's got it open, thumbing the speed dial clumsily. In the pause, she takes two deep, levelling breaths. So when she speaks, her voice hardly trembles at all. Uh, no, this is Flora. She says, like her own name, tastes odd in her mouth. That's all right. I'm, I'm at the shop. There's a, a bit of a mess here, James. Could you come over? Ten minutes, all right, yeah. C come in through the back. Uh, thanks. She closes the phone carefully and puts it in her pants pocket. Then she looks down and pats herself over like, pressing down creases. She rakes at her hair, takes another deep breath, steps over Douglas's waist to get up onto the step, the door sliding, so she can go upstairs and put the children to bed. I'm regarding the case of such absent missing lost spouse inasmuch as it has been satisfactorily established through evidence of circumstances approved by the court that the presumption of death rule may be applied thus allowing the state to grant probate and obtain an adjudication of the issue he enters through the backyard into the workshop he must have parked around the corner he seems very calm, hair sticking up like he's just showered, casual jeans, and he closes the door before turning around. She sees the way he stands still, looks. He's not shocked. She doesn't find this surprising. His eyes move over everything, his face serious and without emotion, just assessing. She stands on the step, holding one arm across her body with the other arm, her shoulders still throbbing. 
The time she spent settling the children has made regular programming resume somewhat, and she feels a flare of panic. Suddenly she doesn't know what possessed her to, to call him or, or what he's going to do. Then he meets her gaze and holds it. Okay, he says. He closes his eyes, opens them. Okay. So if you are thinking uh, four hours for the tanky unit, we'll... Shut up a minute. I, I'm trying to estimate poundage, she snaps. And then she presses her lips. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm... It's all right. It's not. I am very sorry. Flora, he says. She looks at the floor, rubs her fingers. He clears his throat. Pounds. So it's what, the American unit? Yes, that, that's right. So you just halved the weight, isn't that right? She blows out a breath. Yeah, yeah, yes, I think it is. He starts moving immediately, walks over and puts two fingers on the neck of chairman. Seems satisfied, goes through chairman's pockets until he gets the phone, takes out his own phone, holds out his hand for Douglas's. She gives it to him. He cracks them all open, takes out the SIM cards, pockets them, groups the phones on the workbench. He talks as he works. You walked in unexpectedly. Yes. The kids? Uh, yes, uh, upstairs I put them to bed. Think they'd stay asleep? Yes. Okay, he says. Do you have a baby monitor? I I've put it on. Oh, okay. He stands for a moment, considering her. You have very fast reflexes, he says finally. This is like a compliment, like telling her she was clever that time. She doesn't know what to say to this. I need garbage bags, he says. Gloves, buckets, bleach, cleaning gear. I need to get some things from my car. He's so efficient. He doesn't offer comfort. But this efficiency is comforting. She thinks of saying this, but doesn't. He rolls up his sleeves. <coughs> Only the steady grumming chew of the meat saw, which is really getting harder to bear every moment. Second only to the noises when he finishes the section and then empties the full bucket of pieces into the tankage unit. The plop and squelch. She goes all right for a while, keeps cleaning, but then on the last one she can't help but rushes over to the rag bucket and retches. Her stomach grinding painfully, her eyes scrunched shut. His equipment and her supplies are gathered in a neat pile off the edge of the plastic and he's already put the money in a garbage bag. She watches as he unties chairman, tips him onto the floor, the body lying at her, an odd stiff angle. So is this, uh, this is what we do now? She asks, a little wild-eyed. To, to get rid of them, I mean, isn't that what we have to do? Yes, he says shortly. Then he volunteers. I can get rid of this one, okay? It's Douglas we have to worry about. Oh, oh okay, so what, we, uh, we burn off their fingerprints or something? 
James's face twists. Bloody hell, Flora, this isn't the movies. He stopped suddenly, looked at her. Hang on. I, I, I wanted you to remember the good things about him too. The way he read to you both before bedtime. The hugs he gave you, the love. It was never just a lie or a, or a cover story. It was real. The love was real. You have his dark eyes, Peter. And, Tunny, you have his dry, deprecating humour. Something of him lives in both of you and makes me love you even more each day. It's what got me through the... They stop and sit together on the floor, backs to the workbench cupboards, sharing his hip flask. She feels washed out. She thinks they both look washed out, exhausted. There's hours to go. So, are you going to tell me about it? You mean Douglas? Yes. You want me to tell you about Douglas? Yes, she insists. <laughs> Do I need to? He passes her the flask. You're not an idiot, Flora. Well, how about I tell you what I think and you just answer yes or no? Just talk, he sighs. Flora nods, then begins. He's been doing this for a long time. Yes. Longer than... No, no, forget that. James says nothing. And not as a what you call it, an official government. No, he shakes his head. Independent contractor. Oh, and is, is that what you are too, an independent? No, he returns her stare. I mean, not anymore. No, I'm just, a, I'm just an accountant, Flora. Oh, so, so this is, she flicks her hand out to the scene. This is normal? For an independent contractor? James shakes his head emphatically. No, this is horribly, horribly sloppy, unprofessional. Not at all what I would have expected from Douglas. Sloppy, she repeats. She sucks on her teeth. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry, you... No, Flora says. She closes her eyes. Don't apologise. Well, reassure you, Mrs Ernst, that we're, we're still looking into it. Your husband's disappearance is still important to us, whether it's six months or, or six years. Thank you, Detective. Thank you for being so understanding, he says and looks around. It's good you've kept up with your business. Well, it, it keeps me occupied. W would you like a candle, Detective, or... Or maybe a block of soap. Here, these these tapers are nice. Ah, oh, I couldn't. No, please, she says. I insist. It's 4.40am. She skims off the solid, chilled fat from the aspic by just upending the buckets, like making sandcastles, and slicing the hard-top white layer away from the jelly. 
James bags the aspic and takes it out to the car with the other remains for disposal. Flora's hands are greasy from stacking the blocks. She's anticipating a few hours sleep beside her children until she has to get up and make them breakfast before kinder, before returning to the longer work of dipping the tapers and mixing the soap. James comes back for his gear as she's wiping her hands, closing the fridge. I've cleaned the U-bend in the sink and I'll do it again after you've finished, he says. Remember to bag the rags, anything else touching... I know, she says tiredly, I will. I'm going now, he says, hesitates. Flora? She looks at him. Thank you, James, she says, for everything. He moves, can't seem to decide whether to shake her hand or give her a kiss on the cheek, finally settles for squeezing her shoulder. His eyes seem slightly lost, hollow. Then he nods and leaves. Look, maybe asking too much, but I wanted you two to know the whole story. All stories contain a spectrum from light to dark. This one contains much darkness, but a candle emits 13 lumens of visible light. So I, I think of your father and the love that produced you both when I touched flame to wick. That love still burns. It will see us through. Forever. Your mother, Flora. The end. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love your feedback. Subscribe for free to Scarlet Stiletto Bites wherever you get podcasts. And do visit our website, sistersincrime.org.au.